You're listening to the 10th episode of Season 4 of the Wicked Podcast. I'm the recalcitrant Mike Moore. This podcast is about songs written for or to or about women. Mostly, it's about how hard it is for a pair of human beings to form a healthy, lasting, close connection, particularly if their emotional and social development were messed around with by a strict, isolationist rules and shame-based upbringing in their formative years. It is also about depression, words, and music. Each episode is me pontificating around a song from my album Spurned, which is an old word that means rebuffed, turned away, and rejected. You can listen to it like one watches a video of a car accident over and over in slow motion. Episode 10, Sarah J. This song was written about my first experience dating someone who was trying to live gluten-free, dairy-free, and a whole bunch of other things free, all while being a brethren person who didn't break any important brethren rules and get kicked out either. Someone trying, and mostly succeeding, at great personal cost, to be a Plymouth Brethren saint of some kind. She was pretty perfect, indulging almost never in much of anything at all, except on occasion, in forbidden food. She seemed to live purely to brighten rooms and help out other people. She was living at her twenties as more or less exactly what her family and assembly and job expected her to, getting nothing much for herself and generally being a bit too smart for the life she was living and the people she was living around. I never dated a smarter woman, and our punning and wordplay was something else. Susan Isaacs, being a professional comedic actress and writer, had things to say about the role of humor in human relationships. I'm assuming you'd be a fan of the use of humor to help people get to know each other. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's that's my currency. That's how I meet people. That's how I, I mean, I think it's just part of, it's, I'm hardwired for it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's kind of hard not to see, you know, somebody was at a writer's meeting and there was a couple of times, like the first thing that came out of my mouth was some sort of verbal repartee. Humor is a real gift if you have it because it can help break down that over seriousness and it 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 makes people feel warm and welcome and that they're invited in on something. I think um, I'm really grateful that I inherited that from my dad and that I also got it through suffering. I mean, most people who have you know sharp senses of humor have been through a lot, and you know, so at least we get that out of it. Ruth agrees. Humor and teasing for me are absolutely essential ways of showing affection and trust to my friends and family members. I couldn't imagine being attracted to a person that I couldn't have that playful, teasing relationship with. So this song was about me accepting this lovely young woman and her food thing, in my fashion, and writing her a tongue-in-cheek, crime-and-misdemeanor-type song, only with the outlaw status being not from a drunken crime spree or bank heist or something of that kind, but from occasionally falling off the Wheaton dairy wagon and feeling terribly guilty about that, the aforementioned forbidden food and all. A lot of women have complicated emotional connections to food. Carol agrees about the role of humor in human relationships. You'd probably agree that when you're getting to know somebody, embracing their quirks is important and humor helps? It helps a lot, yeah. It's like a shot of whiskey, I guess. (laughs) Humor humor just kind of softens the pain a bit? It does. It does. Crime and misdemeanor songs and stories are quite traditional and are something that I quite like. Music about folks who fought the law and the law won, who shot the sheriff or who shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. Poems like The Highwaymen, songs like Wanted, Dead or Alive, and Gangsta's Paradise. Words and music that allow us to safely explore what Carl Jung would call our shadow side, our potential at least, to break rules sometimes, maybe often and a lot. Imagine if we didn't even have that potential. We're somehow raising kids lately who swear like truckers, are exposed to eye-wateringly pornographic images from way too young an age, but who also live in absolute terror of ever saying something inappropriate or awkward and being judged for that. I don't think Friedrich Nietzsche and Carl Jung were right about absolutely everything by any means, but I think maybe modern kids are not only being coddled, as Jonathan Haidt would say, 
but also raised without much understanding of and acceptance of the potential darker sides of themselves, their own genuine potential to do actual serious harm, making it kind of nothing if they then don't do any harm, oh my brothers. Gives me a pain in the gulliver to even talk about it. We don't talk about sin or sinful nature anymore, and the shrill screeds about systemic racism and whiteness seem to have rapidly run out of breath. Are we interesting enough to have the potential to do actually bad stuff, even stuff far beyond what troubles people like Ibram X. Kendi or Robin D'Angelo? In my twenties, I noted with interest in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Proposes a Toast that he depicts the demons bemoaning the passionless, almost casual, watered-down, timid, barely sinful sinfulness of twentieth-century people as compared to the mighty, colorful, vintage sinning once on tap in previous times, sinning so rank that it would have you begging to confess and repent of it immediately. Your dreaded principal has included in a speech full of points something like an apology for the banquet that he has set before us. Well, gentle devils, no one blames him. But it would be vain to deny that the human souls on whose anguish we have been feasting tonight were of pretty poor quality. Not all the most skilful cookery of our tormentors could make them better than insipid. Oh, to get one's teeth again into a Farinata, a Henry VIII, or even a Hitler. There was a real crackling there, something to crunch, a rage, an egotism, a cruelty only just less robust than our own. It put up a delicious resistance to being devoured. It warmed your inwards when you'd got it down. Instead of this... What have we had tonight? There was a municipal authority with graft sauce. Personally, I could not detect in him the flavour of a really passionate and brutal avarice such as delighted one in the great tycoons of the last century. Was he not unmistakably a little man, a creature of the petty rake-off, pocketed with a petty joke in private and denied with the stalest platitudes in his public utterances, a grubby little nonentity who had drifted into corruption, only just realising that he was corrupt and chiefly because everyone else did it. Then there was the lukewarm casserole of adulterers. Could you find in it any trace of a fully inflamed, defiant, rebellious, insatiable lust? I couldn't. They all tasted to me like undersexed morons who had blundered or trickled into the wrong beds in automatic response to sexy advertisements, or to make themselves feel modern and emancipated, or to reassure themselves about their virility or their normalcy, or even because they had nothing else to do. Frankly, to me, who have tasted Messalina and Casanova, they were nauseating. We're... Clockwork oranges, all of us lately, neutered hamsters to a man. All we have left, often, is watching shows about serial killers, I guess, and TikTok with people doing bad things in stores, restaurants, and planes in America to explore the dark side of humanity. It seems to me that whether it's Jacob or Joseph, Rahab or Rebecca, Samson or Solomon, Peter or Paul, God got the most used set of people in the Bible who had a dark side, complicated people. People who could be manipulative or less than straightforward at times. People who seemed capable of either great good or great harm. Because those are the kinds of people you need if you're trying to do great anything. Also, I think God is most glorified by turning lemons into lemonade. You can't make very good lemonade out of almond milk. You need something with some bite. No one would hide in the trees with a weapon, creeping around all day, or sit in a boat in the hot sun all afternoon in hopes of possibly having tofu for supper. Ours is a God who deals not only in broken hearts, but in shed blood, darkness, and fire. If that God isn't part of your belief system all week, I don't know how you could expect him to show up on Sunday morning with whatever you're doing. Harold sees humor as vital in a romantic relationship, too. I like people that can make me genuinely laugh. Mm -hmm. And this is going to sound crazy, but you should be able to laugh with the person you're with when you're alone. Mm -hmm. Whether you're sitting in bed watching TV, whether you're walking hand in hand, you should be able to laugh and truly find not just joy, but like I don't even know how to explain it. Mm -hmm. Because if you can't, there's something wrong. There's something seriously missing if you can't. Mm -hmm. 
You know, if everything has to be so serious and so sterile and so religiously right, then you got nothing. Because when that doesn't work anymore, what do you fall back on? Yeah. You know? PBCC raised Laura, who is far too private to provide a voice note with her lovely Australian accent to this podcast, has nonetheless empowered me to paraphrase her response today to this episode's topic. I know what Laura's voice sounds like because an age ago when I was doing my audiobook for I Was a Teenage Pharisee, available online, Laura was a stunt voice I used for a much older Australian contributor who didn't want to read her own quotes. I feel everything more now. Ergo, if it's shame that's hitting, then it can sometimes be a bit crippling. But my shame or whatever emotion is mine now, not offloaded because of some silly religion someone else dreamed up and used to control me. Laura mentions a tactic I clearly remember film director Kevin Smith spending lengthy periods of time in his talks engaging in when I used to go and hear him speak live. Are there signs that say applause? Because I don't think I've ever gotten a reaction like that. Kind of reaction like that just makes up for every chick ever said I had a small dick. So. Of using humor to make fun of yourself first. I have mentioned in past episodes how whenever I'm writing lyrics that are particularly dark, I find myself putting in odd puns or whatever. Almost like that shot of whiskey Carol alluded to, to numb the sting of it a bit. And at the height of adolescent depression and suicidal ideation, I thrived, throve, on novelty songs from the Dr. Demento show, especially ones about death and violence. Dr. Demento. 97.1 KLSX. The party's on. When she got up to eat, she asked if I would hold her sight. I was more than happy to. And now there's more I'd like to do. I want to kiss her, but she won't let me. I want to whisper, sweet nothing's in her ear. Dead puppies. Dead puppies. Dead puppies aren't much fun. They don't come when you call. They don't chase squirrels at all. I saw a great big wooden box a-floatin' in the bay. I pulled it in and opened it up, and much to my surprise, ooh, I discovered a right before my eyes. And it should've looked right. They didn't see the station wagon car. The skunk got squashed, and there you are. You got your dead skunk in the middle of the road. Dead skunk in the middle of the road. It looks like a purple people eater to me. It was a one-eyed, one-horned, flying purple people eater. And reflect that whatever misfortune may be your lot, it could only be worse in Milwaukee. You are a fluke of the universe. You have no right to be here. And whether you can hear it or not, the universe is laughing behind your back. Remember when you ran away and I got on my knees and begged you not to leave because I go berserk? Well, you left me anyhow And then the days got worse and worse And now you see I've gone completely out of my mind And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha They're coming to take me away, ho-ho, hee-hee, ha-ha To the funny farm where life is beautiful all the time And I'll be happy to see those nice young men in their clean white coats And they're coming to take me away, ha-ha I'm looking over my dead dog rover who I hit with a power more. One leg is missing, the other is gone. The third leg is scattered all over the lawn. Tooling down the highway doing 79. I'm a twin pipe popper and I'm feeling fine. Hey man, dig that. Was that a red stop sign? <laughs> Fusion, transfusion, I'm just a solid mess of contusions. Never, never, never gonna speed again. Slip the blood to me, bud. 
But they still go for peanuts when coated with the cyanide. The sun's shining bright, everything seems all right when we're poisoning pigeons in the park. I guess Laura is saying, though, that where some people use humor as a way to safely be vulnerable, Others kind of use it defensively. You think you're going to call me fat? Well, I'll do it first, and then you can't. Laura mentions the hardship of being redheaded on the playground at elementary school, and so encouraging the nickname Ginger for herself, and so on, as a way to preemptively make it no fun to make fun of her. Laura did, of course, know the Australian Tim Minchin song Prejudice. It's called... In our modern free-spoken society There is a word that we still hold taboo A word with a terrible history Of being used to abuse, oppress and subdue Just six seemingly harmless letters Arranged in a way that will form a word with more power than the pieces of metal that are forged to make swords. A couple of G's, an R and an E, an I and an N. Just six little letters all jumbled together have caused damage that we may never mend. It's important that we all respect That if these people should happen to choose To reclaim the word as their own It doesn't mean the rest of you Have a right to its use So never underestimate The power that language imparts Sticks and stones may break your bones But words can break hearts a couple of G's, cheese, unless you've had to live it. An R and an E, even I am careful with it. An I and an N, in the end, it will only offend. Don't want to have to spell it out again. Yeah. The song addressed by this episode will actually be the second song I wrote for this lovely young woman. For the first one, I'd done something a little different. She was, at the time, an occasional writer of poetry, and an earnest but conflicted Christian. So, for whatever reason, mostly to convince her that she really was a soulful, quirky poet and that I liked her stuff, I adapted one of the poems from her blog into a song, as a surprise, just to try to collaborate with her. Michael Vetter and I talked about the minefield-slash-goldmine that teasing and joking with a woman tends to be. What, what would you see as the role of teasing in uh, courtship? I think it depends on, on who you're courting. Like, if, if the... There's some personalities that you can get away with that and some that are, are formidable. And it, it takes a long time before you get anywhere close to it. Like I, I, that's how I, what well, was attractive to me about my current wife. Um, she likes teasing. Yeah. Yeah. You could get her, but if you, if you don't do it the right way, you, you might, you might run into uh, dark clouds, you know, for days and not even know why, just because you had, you had inadvertently teased in the wrong direction. Um, I don't know if that's the same with, with other. Some just, you know, eat it up. Yeah. And love teasing, and that's what a relationship is about: is the teasing and the the you know the horseplay and the the wrestling, even you know. In the case of the song um, that that I wrote, I I think it went over well. 
I remember Trey Parker and Matt Stone, the creators of South Park, being asked why they had to joke most about things that made the largest number of people upset the most, instead of just having good, clean fun for everyone. Back when their show was the newest thing on television, they answered that the stuff you can't laugh and joke about is the stuff you haven't dealt with properly yet emotionally. This has, in my experience, gone double for romantic relationships. Those eggshells that are left lying around for you to walk on, those landmines you need to avoid stepping on, mark important stuff to work through that you're probably not working through. It's almost like sense of humor and sense of proportion about anything go hand in hand. Well, I think there's an edge there that you ride and you can go too far, you know, mm-hmm. but it also can be a way to sort of, you know, bond and go deeper. My husband's really good at it, and I've noticed when he does it in a conversation, it sometimes allows him to have a better conversation mm-hmm. and kind of keep the conversation going. Yeah, it adds to it. So, like, like I'm very Generation X, and so when I wrote the thing about the BTP pamphlet that we had, um, I was trying to communicate something. I was trying to say, like, you guys don't know how quaint this would look to a, a non-brethren person what I'm kind of doing is doing like an imitation of it. So this is what it sounds like this. You, you got, we sound like this. And I think I completely failed to communicate that because of my use of humor and, and parody. Either they didn't get it or they pretended not to get it. Well, that's frustrating. Yeah. I mean, going through a story like that and assuming, you know, that they'll get it and they don't, and then be misunderstood and then punished for it. I think they were angry that I joked period. There does seem to be that. I, I used to swear I could smell solemnness <laughs> yeah. like on sunday there was a solemn i mean the air got solemn there was there was no joke you know my sister associates it with uh, furniture polish yeah it's almost like a, a roast cooking i can almost <laughs> there's a smell of that means it's time to be solemn yeah because it was so it was just every week the kids i teach of course don't if they don't go to church or whatever they don't have any life experience of that you have to be serious like they, they don't have to be serious whenever they don't want well when you mentioned that it reminded me it seems like there's people moving towards i don't want to say just left and right but if you had uh it was one way growing up it's like people are sort of going the opposite yeah you different things are offensive now uh in the mainstream the mainstream has changed about humor so i i think it's fascinating that whether it is Joe Rogan or Jon Stewart or Stephen Colbert or whoever it is, people keep going to comedians to say, tell me the truth, because I don't trust anyone else to tell me the truth. No one else tells it like it is except for comedians. And why do you think that is? Isn't that supposed to be the job of a comedian that you walk out on stage and you tell the truth that people don't normally admit and everyone's like, that's so true. Was, <laughs> yeah. was it George Carl? Somebody was saying like, we're looking at homeless people and we're judging them for picking their nose. And that's just because they don't have cars. And we're judging them for talking to themselves, not just because they don't have closets. <laughs> With her, that there were poems and song, and she seemed to love all of that. Yeah. She, she seemed did. to make her feel special, and she seemed to tra- treasure them. This woman was, she said, absolutely overjoyed at hearing her words expressed in a silly little song of mine. She said she and her friend danced around, literally. And like Johnny Cash, I had heard trumpets on the silly little song in my head, and though I hadn't touched my trumpet for a decade or so, I got it out. These are two of the last songs I recorded before upgrading to better software and gear. So it was recorded with my one good mic at the time, plugged into a live mixer board, and then into the microphone jack of a Windows XP-equipped computer and edited with Sony's Vegas program. Still sounds like what I'd do now, though, even though the song's about 20 years old at this point. If I could sing, I'd share a song If I could hum, I'd hum along To tell the tale not quite long Of my deep distress Distress, you ask, behind that mask Of peace and cheerful calm Distress, you ask Behind that mask Of peace and cheerful calm Fear not is not a deadly state Of headache or a wobbly gate Rather a side of future fate 
to sell my lot For selfish flitting flops Bound I am not to sell my lot For selfish flitting flops Yet once again, lo, here I am My mind is numb Don't give a damn and carelessly I choose to ram truth into the dark. What is it worth, this new Christ's birth? In my soul now wriggling. What is it worth, this new Christ's birth? In my soul now wriggling. It curls around my favorite thoughts. Stirs trouble up and bangs on pots to see with war. I see the spots, vacuum struggling gray. Distress, you ask, behind my mask of cheerful peace and calm. Distress, you ask, behind my mask. Peace and cheerful calm Of peace and cheerful calm Of peace and cheerful calm Behind this mask of peace and cheerful calm, indeed, that was who she felt she had to be at all times, especially if people around her were losing their crap and ranting and raving and causing drama or whatever. She had to live to that higher standard. Like I said, a brethren saint. Not a way of life that might, I don't know, result in a lot of pent-up resentment and feeling taken for granted and taken advantage of, though. There was a lot of that going around in the very best of brethren women. You can hear her genuinely pondering and wrestling with the idea that she's been given new life from Christ and yet often feels hopeless, shattered, and dead inside. She'd never really cut loose from church and family expectations or lived her life at all, despite being an adult. But she was seriously considering doing it at some point, maybe by 30 or 40, maybe even with a guy. I suppose in a way, I was also exploring what seemed to me like the all-too-common tendency of many Christians to move from placing all their faith and hope for the future in embedding oneself in church culture from living right into something else, like maybe eating right of being of purer lips than to imbibe carbs or refined sugars, exchanging the church brainwashing and rules they once thought were spiritual for body-based limitations and routines they now saw as spiritual. I've spoken about that before on here, I realize. People don't change as much as they think, because change is hard. Easier to exchange one thing for another thing than it would be to simply get rid of that thing and have a big hole in your life where it used to be. Whenever a formerly religious person proudly professes their newfound atheism, I watch to see what the new hotness is for them. Often, at first, they're just preachy atheists, deconstructing, sermonizing devangelicals, which is boring as hell, obviously, to have to listen to, especially if you grew up hearing as many religious talks as I did. But often, it moves on to something else. Wicca is popular, not UFOs, drugs, and government conspiracies, hopefully, or social activism of the kind that's enjoying damning white people too much to spend very much time at all helping black ones. Yeah, so I grew up Catholic. Anybody else? Yeah, I did all the Catholic milestones, baptism, First Holy Communion, confirmation, atheism, right? I shouldn't even say I'm an atheist. Let's say I'm agnostic about my atheism, right? (laughs) Atheists are such smug hypocrites, by the way. (laughs) Atheists will be like, you pray to a god that's so silly. Can I show you my vision board real quick? (laughs) I know a lot of white atheists. I don't know many black atheists. Not none, just not many. I got a theory about why there's not many black atheists. Here goes. (laughs) Atheism is really like the height of white privilege it really is because religion basically says like hey can we interest you in an afterlife and white people are like oh no thank you (laughs) 
how much better could it be? I'll just take my supplements and see what happens, huh? Back in the day, Mark Vetter spoke of integrity in terms of not only uprightness and honesty, but internal structural integrity, like the wing of a plane. Did you hold together inside psychologically? Mark firmly felt that it weakened one's psychological cohesion to go against one's own conscience. This was complicated by the fact that what all of us brethren folk interpreted and experienced as our own consciences was mostly just our own brainwashing, indoctrination, training, or whatever you want to call it. Our consciences were not really our own. I've spoken before about how I was very slow and gentle with myself about stepping over those brethren barriers I'd always lived with to have a look around at the world outside them. I didn't start going to movies or drinking socially or so on until I was 21. In the whole performing musician phase of my 20s, I never felt comfortable or ready to even try weed. Back then, I kissed girls and I liked it, but that was about it. I was following that old wisdom which taught that close connections between two people are forged by the sharing not of bodily fluids only, but of shared intimate information, conversations, and experiences. Conversations and time spent in the light, being together and seeing each other as clearly and as acceptingly as you could, and not just in the dark. Building toward knowing and accepting someone so well, you even knew and accepted them in the harsh light of day. This way, if you eventually knew them in the biblical sense in the dark, you already knew that you knew and accepted this person. You were not doing the most personal thing possible with someone who is basically a stranger. Many brethren folks I encountered were like this woman. I've been walking that line between brethren and worldly throughout my 20s myself, but had now been kicked out entirely, consigned to Satan by my church for mortification of the flesh, and so on. I still occasionally try dating worldly girls who dropped me right quick after I didn't put out on the first date, and brethren girls who didn't last long once they realized the notoriety I'd earned in our circles and the reality that I was never going to be allowed back in. It was pretty simple. If your reality was that you attended a church that wasn't really a church and had no actual rules and one that people don't actually get kicked out of for anything much besides serious sexual crimes like premarital sex, and if people ever did get kicked out of it, they would soon be allowed back in, I presented a real problem because I was a living, breathing example of someone our church had kicked out, despite not even breaking any rules, particularly sexual ones, despite the rumors and lies, and kicked out was never going to be allowed back in. And if you married me, no one was even supposed to eat with me. And if I came out to church, I'd have to sit in the back and not take communion and would never be an insider. That was a big pill to swallow for women. It proved too much for more than one brethren woman who found a connection to me forming. For one thing, her friends and family would not see how a relationship with someone in my position was workable. For another, I wasn't just a victim. I thought and said things that deconstructed the culture and made people see dots connecting, and which, despite my best efforts, tempted them to doubt and throw away Christianity, despite my not doing that myself. I wasn't allowed to talk about God and the Bible and life and stuff at Bible studies, yet I wanted to talk about those things, and frequently did talk about them everywhere else. That just wasn't right. A time and place for everything. So this one, all closed down and locked up by brethren hang-ups and family and church expectations, or just not that into me? You be the judge. No, I think I failed an addition based upon how I went over with her family and friends. It was the, the big game changer there yeah yeah that sucks but i mean yeah she's not the only person that i tried to pursue and realized she didn't know what she needed but she needed she couldn't do a long distance relationship she needed somebody local i've had more than one brethren girl who needed someone who didn't have my relationship with the meeting so it had nothing to do with how i was treating her and what we were doing together it was what the meeting thought of me and therefore her family and her friends and everybody. And even if you try to talk to them, they'd start start up with me about trying to change my mind about the meeting. And if I would refuse to have my mind changed, that was a problem. Mm. I saw a lot of zealots who finding the brethren set of limits and obligations and answers to difficult questions increasingly unsatisfying, but having ties that kept them in that movement, embraced other things to be zealous over. 
Obviously, end times, conspiracy theory, looniness was always an option for you, fighting about dinosaurs, Syria, and the Grand Canyon, and things like that. But some embraced things that were an otter mix with brethrenism, things like herbal remedies, homeopathy and essential oils, or gluten-free, dairy-free, everything-free diets, or raising homeschooled, unvaccinated, screenless, off-the-grid kids, stuff like that. In more recent times, some brethren folks have melded brethrenness with the cult of Trump, or anti-vax, or the opposites of those things. Because for a growing number of people, brethrenness was simply not enough on its own. For us, brethrenness had been a white-knuckled attempt to ensure the 1960s didn't happen to our assemblies in the 1980s, to make sure no modern music or clothing or talk soiled our Sundays. So, Victorian hymns, Elizabethan Bible translations, prayers with thee and thou, and very formal clothing and behavior at church. This got increasingly stupid as the 2000s started. Just try and go through the entire day without having your ears polluted with rock and roll music or mild swearing. And screens? Screens have won. To this day, it takes a very special sort of brethren person to still boast that they have no, no television. television, messaging this to you from their iPad, which has Netflix on it. In the early 20th century, brethren folks opposed newspapers, radios, and telephones. But like them, screens and the internet have gotten into brethren homes where in a previous century you could have caught your kids sneaking out to see the twinkling legs swinging and kicking at a Broadway musical or vaudeville show, now you generally are unable to police what your kids are seeing on their personal screens. I have encountered some brethren lads who've told me in hushed tones that they've had to give their parents parental controls through nanny apps and kid-protected settings for their phones and computers as they are addicted to pornography, and generally... Being addicted means having a normal male sexual response to, and pornography meant anything with a nipple visible in frame. And again, I stood and stand as an odd and awkward reality for brethren people with brethren assumptions. I have a normal male sexual response to anything that has a female nipple somewhere in frame, but I've never developed a taste for depictions of men screwing women or sex acts on video in general. I just like women and their bodies. Odd, I know. Speaking of women, the woman that I wrote this song for really liked this one. At the time, I used a pseudonym for the criminal analog for her in the song, so I am able to continue using that false name for the purposes of this podcast. Hopefully she will never hear it. I guess I need to broach the topic of how awkward, strictly raised adult Christian women can be, not only about food, but also their bodies and physicality in general. It almost seems done to them on purpose. Susan talks about this more in terms of mainstream society, spurred on by the TV and Hollywood industry that she works for. I was trying to have a relationship with this girl who was, you know, pretty messed up with Christian upbringing. And we were finding our feet with this relationship. And early on in a relationship, I'm not looking for sex. I'm looking for the right to give compliments. And that may not sound like very much, but that's a big thing for a man to be able to actually tell a woman that you like something about her physically. And so many Christian women I've spoken to, that's just so unwelcome and they don't know how to deal with it at all. And so in one case, we, we were really starting a relationship and I, I gave her some little flirty compliment, very subtle, very tasteful. And the room just turned icy cold. And she said, I don't need you to be physically attracted to me right now. And that wasn't about me. That was about mm, who, know, who knows her. what other stuff yeah. and, and her past and, and things. Yeah. But it's, you sort of come in and you realize, all I've got to bring is I like you. And you realize, and that's exactly the wrong thing to bring into the room. They don't want you to like them. And I've never understood how do you, how do you uh, deal? Well, I think there, it's also sometimes that's unfair because the woman will come to a man because she wants to be adored and appreciated and cherished, but then it becomes controlling about how you can express it. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously some things were like, Hey, you know, I'm, that's a little too much for me right now, but there's a way to have grace about that and not be like, no, you can't that again. I think that because our culture is so oversaturated with sex and it's become a commodity and it's become we're so saturated with a transactional sort of thing that it has become at once 
meaningless and also fraught with too much meaning. Mm -hmm. um, and that it, it is bloated way out of proportion or under, you know, brushed under the table. And that you kind of feel sad, you know, you kind of long for, was there ever a time in which people were just, they were who they were and there wasn't so much crap around it? I mean, I don't know. I mean, what is that? proverb you know i've seen four things that are too wonderful me there's something the the way of a bird and, and the, the way, way of a man, of a man, with, man a with a man like it was something beautiful and wonderful and people will tell us that in the old testament these were very transactional you know for camels and dowries and things and that it was completely unromantic but there's definitely some poetry in there that makes me think otherwise oh gosh yeah and and like how much um isaac like wanted rachel mm-hmm and work for her or the song of songs you know yeah. um yeah that there was a lot of arranged marriages and all that but, you know but also the thing is the bible is a story about love between god and his people um it's not a romance novel so yeah. it's like i wouldn't get justin bieber's album expecting to find a history of canada in it I might get a little bit of it because he's Canadian. I don't know. Mm -hmm. That's like saying no one in biblical times was ever gay or right. like no one during the civil war ever questioned slavery. I mean, like these, I don't know. It, it just seems like people have say, always been people. People have always been people. Yeah. Desire has always fueled what we do. So to think that no one, you know, there were no love matches, that's ridiculous. The Bible is not a history of love matches, except no. for the love that God had for us. And That's I don't it. know if I'm, I might be plagiarizing you or not, but uh, a lot of people get very theological about prophecies in the Old Testament. And I keep reading them as the outpouring of a very hurt lover, some of it. That's mm. the only way, only way I can read God is that he, he, and people are saying that, that God could not lose his temper. God could not be hurt because he's, and I think he, maybe he can do both of those things. Those people haven't read the Bible then. They kind of have PhDs in divinity, though, is, is why that it's hard to convince them that they haven't read the Bible. I, all the thing about God's anger and burning and wanting to, like, kill everyone and, you know, mm -hmm. you know, Abraham saying, like, well, what if I can find 100 men and, you know, all that? Yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I think if you Google God's anger as a quote, like, how much would you find it? Being a brethren relationship, this was a long-distance one. But this was before texting, so it was all emails and telephone calls. Anson and I talk about how this has really changed. So I have a lot of relationships, a lot of friendships. Some of them started because there was potential romantic interest, but, but these were people I met online, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's weird because my entire experience of this person... Is, is through a simulacrum, you know, it's through the phone or, or yeah. a screen. And so it's weird because sometimes you find yourself getting attached, but then you're like, I, I, if I'm honest, I don't know this person contextually. I see, I talk to them on a regular basis mm -hmm. in the evening, or, you know, I haven't, I haven't been to a barbecue with them. I haven't seen them distraught about something that happened at work, you know, like in, in real space, you know? So it was kind of my 40s that I would have days where I was just sending text messages back and forth all day for weeks, months. And yeah. it, it does give, as you say, the illusion that you're spending the day with them. But in fact, you're not. Let's look in the Wicked Mailbag. Sally writes, I have been married almost 35 years, and no one can make me laugh like my husband. This has been true from the start. He threatened to flare his nostrils at me during our wedding vows, and he had this whole look on his face at the rehearsal like he was about to do it. He refrained, and I made it through the rehearsal an actual wedding without bursting into laughter. Robin, who has curly hair and whose locker was on the second floor next to mine all through high school, says... I was once told, your hair is absolutely radiant. Why, it radiates in all directions. We had a huge laugh. 
Joy writes, The night I met my dear husband, there were several of us sitting around a campfire. I had met him that day, but had not spent much time talking with him. As I talked to another woman, he came crawling up to me on his hands and knees. He was making a purring sound and arching his back. I told him, Go away! I do not like you! He laughed and went back to the other side of the fire. I did not know at the time, but I had just issued a cosmic-sized challenge to him, and the rest is history. See, this is what I'm talking about as to single folks being discussed as generalized members of statistical groups while each couple has a cute story that shows how unique and colorful and unprecedented their relationship truly is. The Wicked Mailbag was an idea I had so that people could send emails or just comment on social media posts, and I would read their answers with their permission. This week we go somewhat off the ranch, so to speak, in that regard. Alana, who I taught in high school when I was about the age she is now, but still wants to call me Mr. when she sees me at the post office, says, My husband said that I grew on him. I asked him, grew on you? Like a fungus? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly like a fungus. I've made that joke about things growing on you like a fungus a time or two myself since I was a precocious child. I guess I'm the kind of fungus that grows in solitude in the dark of a dank, damp basement. But this kind of joking around, or teasing, as I would call it, allows Elena's husband to both compliment her while also perhaps teasing her about the fact that she is, maybe he is suggesting, a bit of an acquired taste. Hey, I'm in the wicked mailbag. Evan, though frequently interviewed and playing drums on this episode, has always secretly really wanted to be in the wicked mailbag. So I said, if he read his thoughts on humor, he was welcome to be in this segment. I'm here to say that humor is central to my relationship with my girlfriend. I've come up with four examples for how humor has played a role in our relationship. Number one, humor was how we formed a friendship. And eventually that friendship became the foundation on which we built our romantic relationship. Number two, we use humor when we're teasing each other or roasting each other, as we usually say, which provides a lot of utility to both of us. Humor lets us criticize each other a bit in a way that's less insulting and more helpful than it otherwise would be. Number three, we usually use humor to deal with bad news. Sometimes it's like we're in a race to see who can make a too soon joke the fastest. The humor allows us to cope and it also helps us help each other to cope. And number four, humor helps us de-escalate. Psychologist and author John Gottman writes about repair attempts in his book, The Seven Principles of Making Marriage Work. A repair attempt is, quotes, any statement or action, verbal, physical, or otherwise, meant to diffuse negativity and keep a conflict from escalating out of control, end quote. For us, repair attempts usually come in the form of humor. To give one example, suppose I want something to be a particular way but I just can't seem to justify why I need it to be that way and the situation is getting tense, my girlfriend will say, why does your lizard brain need it to be that way? And we both laugh about lizard brain, which maybe is funny to you or maybe it isn't, but it's funny to us and it helps us de-escalate an otherwise tense situation. So those are four ways in which humor has played a central role in our romantic relationship. Cheryl takes a dim view of anything that could be called teasing, though. I must admit to never being much of a fan of it myself, but for people more emotionally resilient than I am, it can be a gentle testing and reassuringly proving the resilience of the relationship, experiencing the fact that it can take a tiny bit of prodding and downright shit testing. Will you put up with me doing or saying this, and you'd only put up with that from a close friend? Then I guess we're close friends. Cool. Cheryl says... I think, I think humor, humor and teasing, teasing are, are not the same. same. A, a person, person who thinks teasing is humor, is funny, is an abuser. Humor is high on my list of attractive traits. To laugh at ourselves, to laugh at humanity, to laugh at the world is priceless. But to laugh at someone you care about or are romantically interested in or tease is horrific. Sometimes people are arguing over semantics. This is a great example of a song that was recorded 20 years ago on my old computer setup and which I imported into my new gear and had a go at. 
My first impression was that it sounded like what it was, a pretty casually recorded sloppy demo of a song written and emailed as a joke to make one girl laugh, which I think it did, although how much of a sense of humor she had about herself and food was always an open question, and whether I was joking, teasing, or something that reminded her of bullying could be worried over at length, but I don't think there was a problem there. So my first job was to send this to Evan so he could email me back some drum tracks, and then I could edit those to my liking. It's not so much that I'm editing Evan to fix mistakes he's made so much as I'm editing between takes that approach the song in different ways so I can get the feel that I have in my head. With the drums there, it sounded clearer to me than before, when there had been no drums, that the bass, guitar, and vocals weren't glued together in terms of timing as well as could be hoped. The drums just kind of shone a spotlight on that problem. So that was a redo required right there. One of the problems with very slow-tempoed songs is they can be very boring, lacking groove, and they can seem to go on way too long. The other problem is that slow-tempo songs really show it when any part wanders from the beat here or there. It's like putting a horse race or football play into a slow-mo instant replay flashback where you can see everything with lots of time to notice everything, only with music, and you have the chance to hear everything. At least that's how it seems to me. And why am I seemingly able to create more professionally performed instrument parts now than I was back in the day? A couple of decades of recording instrument parts will do that. Not to mention I've played in a couple of bands since then, and bands in my 30s and 40s, unlike bands in my 20s, were much more willing to practice all the time and try to get things right. Also, my brain and ears are better now, despite the aging. Also, when it's all about performing live, people tend to get a bit drunk and or high and toss themselves up onto a stage and overcome their stage fright and just toss out a performance and feel like they overcame something to do it at all. And usually, they don't want to be recorded or videoed and see how much worse it was outside of their adrenaline-filled head. When you're recording, you are missing all of the distractions and you have all the time in the world, especially with home recording, where you're alone and have the day to work. You don't have to just keep playing if you screw up. You can stop in the middle and restart as often as you like, although I don't do that much. I've always been a bit of a one-take guy. So, at first, your live recordings are much more energetic, emotional, and interesting, but erratic, and your home and studio recordings are more perfect, but more boring and stale and a bit empty. Over time, though, you get better at bridging the gap between those two kinds of performances. So nowadays, at home, mostly I do a take, do a second and maybe even a third one as spares, and then choose the strongest take off in the first one, and import short band-aid bits from the spare track or tracks as necessary to fix anything I don't like, but that's something I don't usually need to do very much. I have almost never performed live for the past 10 years, just at Christmas assemblies at school and so on. But when I record, I think I'm getting a bit better at putting a bit more emotion into it without losing pitch and rhythm accuracy while I do it. I'm still a rank amateur, but the goal is to get better at playing on pitch and on beat while sounding like you really don't care much if you are. You're too busy telling a story and having a personality. The thing that sounds really bad is the opposite of that, coming off like you're trying really hard, boringly, to not make mistakes and occasionally making them anyway. So, with this song, I continue that thing I've been doing lately of singing less carefully and with more character in the sense of trying to sound more like a balladeer, like Waylon Jennings or something. And I guess that's just how they do it in Hazard County. The original song sounded like this, with a drum loop to fill in for real drums. In Minnesota, there was a girl named Sarah Jane. For the episode, I redid almost everything, building a new version of the song right on top of the other. Sent Evan the usual guide track, and he sent back some drums. Used to the 12 mic room sound treatment on George's drums of late, I did my best to mess up Evan's digital track to make it sound a bit more like that. (laughs) 
I popped a string on my Nashville strung acoustic, and because none of the local small-town music stores survived COVID, I had to drive into the city to buy strings, which I did to make the choruses have even more acoustic guitars. And then I put in a pair of shakers with Evan's work to try to glue the drums to the acoustics. I kept the old bass line because why not, doing a bit of editing to make it stick to Evan's drums better. I also left the old organ track in there, but I cut it out of the verses. I replayed the piano part I'd done years ago on who knows what, likely an 80s chord keyboard I'd borrowed from Michael Vetter for some years. So the old one sounded like... Came. I really went nuts singing many different voices in many different ways for this song. Cassie and Jenny never know quite what to say. What can be done? For a girl like Sarah Jane, what can be done for poor old Sarah Jane? The start of the song needed something, and lest I need to break out an electric guitar or something, I thought about adding some other sort of solo. I did play harmonica on a couple of the songs recently, so I considered it. A simple harmonica part seemed called for with one problem. I'd put a capo on my guitar to give me slightly higher notes to reach for, and none of my harmonicas are in G-sharp. Not sure if anyone's are. Side note, like in sports, people like it when you have to reach for notes, when you have to really try. Because easy is boring. Sincere effort is felt by the audience. In It Might Get Loud, Jack White explains how rather than being a pampered rock star who needs everything on stage to be laid out in the most convenient, easy way possible, he purposely positions things just out of reach, making his whole stage performance feel like he's really giving it his all. About singing, Meatloaf said, Some people make it look easy. I make it look hard. So... I'd capoed this song up just to make me reach for those high notes a bit more, which isn't hard as I can't sing terribly high anyway in my regular voice, and this left me with the mystery of the semitone too low harmonica to solve. Here's what I did. I exported the song entire, using the drum lute that had been the rhythm keeper before enlisting Evan's services, as the drums don't start at the start of the song and I wanted the harmonica to be on rhythm. And I then pitch-shifted the whole song digitally down a semitone into G while retaining the song length. One, two, one, two, three, four. And then I played a G harmonica to the digitally detuned song, very simply... Then I exported the harmonica track, intro bit, on its own, with the harmonica digitally pitch-shifted up a semitone, putting it into G-sharp like the song proper. And it seemed to work. 
this song ended up being a whole lot of me doing a lot of the sort of stuff that I do in the way I tend to do it. So hopefully it ends up sounding a bit like me when I'm not playing electric guitars. Hey 